Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 435 of the podcast. It is January 12th, 2022. Our guests today are Dr. Sunil Kushalani and Antonio DePaulo. And I should say, they're, they're both doctors. We have an MD and a PhD. We have a psychiatrist and an engineer who've done great work together uh, applying lean in the mental health care delivery setting. Um, they are co-authors of the new book called Transforming Mental Health Care. So today we're going to have a conversation about lean in mental health care, what they've learned, what they've done. And, and I think more importantly, there are lessons that come from the realm of mental health care that'll be helpful to anybody doing lean work in any setting. So for links and show notes to get a discount code to buy the book through their publisher, you can find a lot more by going to leanblog.org slash 435. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My guests today are the co-authors of the new book. It was released in December 2021 titled Transforming Mental Health Care, Applying Performance Improvement Methods to Mental Health Care. So our guests today are a physician, a psychiatrist, more specifically, and an industrial engineer. So as an industrial engineer, celebrate that. Um, our guests are Sunil Kushalani. He, again, is a psychiatrist who specializes in addiction psychiatry. And we're also joined by Antonio DiPaolo, um, He's a, a PhD, a transformation executive and Baldridge fellow who has more than 22 years of experience in improvement science. So Sunil and Antonio, thanks uh, to you both for joining me. How are you? Thank you for having us on your show. Uh, congratulations on uh, the release of the book. I had a chance to read it um, earlier last year, I think it was, when before uh, it went to print. Um, it, it's a great book. I hope people uh, will check it out. You know, there's there's a big market out there, I'm sure, for people trying to do this work in uh, mental health care settings, but I think some of the lessons from the book are going to be real broadly applicable. So we have an opportunity um, to explore that today. Um, the, the book, I uh, was just, I noticed on uh, Amazon has endorsements by Dr. Don Berwick from um, IHI, um, Notoriety, of course, uh, Dr. John Toussaint, uh, Professor Steve Spear. So it's a, it's a very impressive list and I'm, I'm honored you'd also ask me uh, to to review the book, but you know you you can hang your hat on those other blurbs. That's very impressive. Yeah, all all four of you, at least for me, were some of the heroes that I looked up to, or it helped me in understanding this whole field myself. So I was very very thrilled when all of you you know decided to review the book and write a blurb for us. Well, they, there are three people I certainly look up to and have learned a lot from. So. I'm glad uh, they they liked the book as well. Um, so we're gonna have a chance to dive into what you you know shared in the book and and take a glimpse into that here today. Um, but I'm gonna you know start off with a question that I ask most guests because um, you you have different backgrounds professionally and with your degrees. I'm always fascinated to hear you know people's lean origin stories. I think as we've come to call it here. Uh, so Antonio, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. So uh, my lean origin story uh, as an industrial engineer, uh, we, we uh, spent a fair amount of time talking about uh, lean and Six Sigma and performance improvement in our curriculum. But then going to work in a General Motors factory, as well as uh, working with uh, Delphi Automotive and, and learning uh, and working within their global lean group, I really learned from a lot of folks who were uh, very immersed in their specific craft, whether it was queuing theory or um, quality theory or production systems or ergonomics. And then uh, after that, I went to work for a, a company, uh, Stanley Tools, where they used uh, Shingijitsu Consulting. And I had a sensei from that consulting group uh, where I learned more of the finer details uh, of lean thinking um, and it was just a, a great honor to learn, learn from folks like uh, Sensei Nakao and, and some others um, and how they approach uh, the entire, um, you know, improvement in science um, and, and really kind of leveraging that to uh, accelerate uh, 
flexibility and speed within a in an operation. And so 16 years of, of experience in uh, manufacturing, and then I moved over into a healthcare to, um, you know, um, start a, a new chapter, if you will. And, and Nakao is legendary, of course. I've, I've heard a lot of stories about him. I, I've never had the opportunity to learn from him directly or, or meet with him. And, but, you know, at General Motors, so one thing we share in common is, you know, I started my career at GM uh, for, for two years, um, 1995 to 1997. And people might say, well, how, how much could you learn about lean at GM or Delphi? But even in those years and in years after, GM had a lot of knowledge. They had a lot of success stories. You know, I was fortunate to have a the, the second plant manager I worked for was one of the original NUMI people. So, you know, that knowledge was there within GM. It sounds like you were able to tap into that as they were trying to spread that throughout the company. Correct. Yeah. A lot, a lot of folks that were, you know, highly uh, engaged in the NUMI project came to our facility and, and really helped us understand, um, you know, the finer points and we were able to implement uh, successfully. So Sunil, let's, let's turn to you before we, you know, we'll, we'll go back and hear about Antonio's um, shift into healthcare. You're of course, a, a physician, a psychiatrist, um, how, how and where and what were the circumstances for you being introduced to Lane? So uh, my first introduction came, um, one of our vice president at uh, Shepherd Pratt where I was working uh, was taking an MBA course at Hopkins and he invited one of the professors there uh, his name is Chip Davis to come and give us a course on leadership in patient safety. And one of the articles that he passed in the course was Steven Spears article, you know, um, how healthcare can fix itself from inside mm -hmm. in HBR. Yeah. Um, so that's the first I heard about uh, lean and about Toyota based methods being used in a hospital. I happened to find the book of Pittsburgh way, you know, um, in my library and, you know, devoured it. Mm -hmm. excitedly went to um, our vice president. We had another, another vice president said, you know, they're offering a course in Pittsburgh. Why don't you go and take the course? So I asked my vice president to come along with me. And both of us went to take the course, a four-day course. It was called Perfecting Patient Care. I think Steve Spear and uh, Paul O'Neill were kind of, you know, consultants to this consortium in Pittsburgh. And to me, those three days... I literally had insomnia. I mean, I could not sleep because I could I could see so many applications of this way of thinking to what I was seeing every day in my day-to-day -day practice. You know, fast forward, as you get immersed in this, you start learning about Virginia Mason, you know, uh, John Tuisant's work at TedaCare. You know, we came across your books, uh, Dr. Berwick. I became a member of the IHI and, you know, got to know Don Berwick's work. So, you know, all, all of you kind of were path breakers for us, for me, especially to kind of follow along and, and constantly keep bringing this back to my workplace. And for the first two years, we worked with PRHI, which was a, a group that taught us the course. And then, you know, we were advised to have our own internal expert. And that's when I contacted you, I think, in the past, and you had connected me to Styles. And through Styles, mm -hmm. we came to have Antonio, uh, you know, referred ah. as one of the people. And that's how, you know, the whole, uh, everything gets connected, you know, all the dots get yeah. connected, you know. So, yeah, and, and it's funny, those, those dots of uh, Styles Associates, um, recruiting firm that focuses on lean. I've known Ted Styles and, and Jake Styles and um, them for a long time. They, they've been a sponsor of the podcast. So people may have uh, heard a, a little ad for them at the beginning, but so it's good to know that there's that, that connection. Um, when we, some of these other names that you mentioned here, uh, the Pittsburgh way book is one that I really loved. Uh, Nada Grundon, who is the author of that has been uh, a guest on this podcast uh, twice. And I'll, I'll put links to that in the show notes, Steve Spear has been a guest here many times and, and he's amazing. And then um, I'm, I'm really happy to hear you mention Paul O'Neill who passed away in 2020. You know, he's, he's been uh, incredibly important and influential um, to, to me as, as many in, in healthcare. 
So what what Sunil, what was what was the time frame of your kind of your your first discovery, your first uh, introduction to Lane? In 2009. 2008, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. In that time frame. Yeah. So that was still, I mean, I would put that in maybe still the early adopter part of the curve. But do you think that was especially true for you in mental health care? Well, absolutely. There was nothing, yeah. there was nothing uh in that space, at least in a in a form of a publication. I think there was some work being done in, in NHS. I think uh NHS had invited, I think Don Berwick and uh Margaret uh um, um, the CEO of uh, Virginia Mason, Gary Kaplan, uh, you know, to go and advise them. And they had they had two um, uh, sets of books. One was, I think, they initially called that whole series the Productive Ward, and then they retitled it as uh, Releasing Time for Care. So these these were both lean applications that they had incorporated into NHS and. I think that was also one of the earliest publications I saw, but there was very little about mental health care there. The only other book in this space was published by Health and Hospitals Corporation and Oxford University Press. It was called Lean Behavioral Health, which was a story of uh, this uh, Health and Hospitals Corporation applying lean principles to their hospital system. You know, and But we tried to take a different approach to the book in the sense we didn't want to make it about uh, our hospital's journey, like there were many other books in that uh, in that way, we thought you know if if an independent practitioner or if an independent administrator were to want to apply something like this to their own work, what could they learn as basics, and that would kind of open their minds to waste or value or things like that. So that was our approach to the book, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, HHS. You, you mentioned they're they're in New York City, and for those who don't know, Shepherd Pratt is located in. Baltimore. Baltimore, so it's down the coast uh, a ways. Um, you know, uh, Antonio, let me let me turn it back to you because Sunil mentioned how you were um, you know brought in through Styles Associates. I mean, what, what are your similar recollections about making that first uh, step or leap? I don't you know in into healthcare, making that transition. Well, you know, I. I... I went into the deep end of the pool, so to speak. You know, most people start in general healthcare. I went all the way into mental health care. Um, and it was really a, an interesting time to come into a space where um, a lot of the answers to my questions were maybe. <laughs> and, um, and so it was rather challenging. Um, and it was kind of like, uh, you know, coming into a, a kind of an open canvas, if you will. Uh, and so it was an opportunity to uh, really, you know, kind of paint the system of uh, improvements um, for this uh, system of care. And so uh, that appealed to me. The other thing that appealed to me, I think, was the fact that these were experts in behavior. And as you know, uh, a lot of what we deal with in the lean world uh, is behavior, right? Because it's those behaviors that uh, are driven from culture, which are driven from leadership, right? And so if we want to improve the results that we get, we have to really uh, drive at those behaviors. And so it was an opportunity for me to learn from the foremost experts just around behavior theory theory, and, and how to approach it. Um, and so it was a, it was a it was one of those uh, things that you look back and you say, yeah, you know, this was a, a perfect match for somebody like myself uh, to immerse myself and really learn um, more about my craft. It's, I think it's always great when you can combine in, in any circumstances, clinical backgrounds and engineering mindsets and kind of weave together different levels of, of expertise. Um, but yeah, that, that behavioral health dimension to it is is even more intriguing um it's is it's an opportunity uh perhaps you know sunil maybe let me you know turn this to you an opportunity for for those who are leaders and practitioners in behavioral health uh, to practice what you preach when it comes to uh organizational behavior what, what, what are some of your thoughts or experiences on that so one of my most uh, remarkable experiences was you know I had first met you in the Mid-Atlantic Conference in Timonium, Maryland. In the same conference, I met Ron Oslin, who was um, 
another you know he was a lean coach executive lean coach of, uh, for capital one at that time and he and i you know happened to go to dinner that night and he asked me what do i do i said i'm an addiction psychiatrist and you know his first question to me was how do you change people and you know that led to our discussion on you know stages of change uh, and motivational interviewing and you know he was very intrigued by that idea i think he later on went on to uh, create an entire uh, way of teaching this in a workshop format uh, but but that discussion started in a restaurant in timonium and he and i he actually even mentioned my name when he gave, he was called to give the keynote speech the following year uh, saying that that started in in that conversation and you know so for me it was very interesting to see his thinking was that executives that he was coaching were addicted to firefighting addicted to status quo and they didn't really want to take this long you know st- not long approach of you know empowering people you know going to the front line helping people create a learning organization that was too long an approach for them they wanted quick results you know quick wins and he felt that was antithetical to this kind of uh, system so it was really amazing for me to be able to share notes with him about what i would do as a person to apply these ways of changing patients to you know uh, learning systems or to learning organizations so it was a very interesting conversation yeah yeah and motivational interviewing is something i've been able to uh, cover in a couple of episodes where I've interviewed people, and um, I, I was introduced to that topic, um, that 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 approach uh, by a social worker, maybe going back seven years ago. And I've I've taken Ron's workshop, as as you mentioned, and there, there's uh, a free webinar that he did for the Lean Enterprise Institute. Um, I'll I'll try to remember to put that in the show notes, or people can Google it. Um, I, I've been trying to get Ron to be on the podcast. If I do, I can ask him his side of, I guess, what is his motivational interviewing origin story? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, it's funny how many uh, dots there are to connect uh, amongst the people we've come across and learned from in different directions. Um, yeah, and, and, and when, when he teaches that um, method, uh, motivational interviewing approach, yeah, he uses that phrase, um, addicted to the status quo, so um, I'm, I'm curious, maybe you first, um, Sunil, then, then your thoughts, Antonio, based on what you've learned, you know, my, my, my parroting back of, I think, what I've learned, and, and please, you know, correct me or elaborate on this, is that um, addiction is characterized by um, a situation where you have reasons to change and you have reasons not to change. And we continue doing something, even though we know it's probably net, net bad. And that's the challenge. Um, can, can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic of addiction and, and how you see that in leaders as opposed to people who are getting treated for clinical addictions? So if you think about patients who come for treatment or who are referred for addiction treatment, the majority of patients fall into two categories. The first category are called uh, pre-contemplators. These are people who are not even aware that they have a problem or they are in denial of the problem or they minimize the problem. Then there is a next group of category that have been informed or that have somehow realized that there might be some problem, but they're ambivalent. So they are in this ambivalent phase of their life. So they have equal and opposite forces. One side of them wants to stay the same. One side of them wants to change. And any direct attempts at telling them to change invokes a resistance on their part to stay the same. So if you tell somebody who has been drinking a lot or who has an alcohol use disorder, you drink so much, he would tell you all the reasons where he doesn't drink so much or like my friends drink more than I do or, you know, nobody, you know, I, I'm the person who can hold my liquor, you know, all these things. So similarly, I think when you approach uh, physician leaders or people in medicine, it's very hard for them to move from an individual dynamic, like when you are a doctor and there is a patient, there's a one-on-one dynamic, to a systems dynamic. I mean, this whole notion of thinking about the whole system of care, thinking about how you're set up, thinking about the whole value stream, thinking about the journey of a patient from start to end. We are not trained to think like that. So when I first came across you know, the system of profound knowledge by Deming, 
and you know he has these four components the first thing is like systems thinking and most of us are not trained to think that way and so there is a very um, the typical reaction to any problem is to do more conferences to do consultations to go to the library to go do research but nobody kind of tells you to kind of take a 30000 foot view and look at the whole system and is it designed correctly like so when antonio comes to a place like this and asks somebody well why do you do this or why do you do that the commonest answer after maybe is well it depends it depends on this it depends on that but nobody has specified those parameters that can be easily you know invoked sure and i think just to piggyback on that you know um i remember one of the first things that sunil asked me to do was actually watch his process <laughs> and so I spent some time watching this doctor patient process. And after about three or four hours, he asked me, so what'd you think? And I said, well, you know, about 35% of what you did was waste. And just like we just spoke about of people not knowing how much waste is in that process. I think, you know, Sunil, you can talk to it, but I think you were kind of blown away about how much waste was embedded in this process. And Um, we but were, I think before that there was a relationship between me and Antonio in the sense that he and I had come to know each other or get comfortable with each other. I had understood waste value. I was primed at PRHI. Yeah. So for me to see those eight ways, you know, evident in my own day-to-day work, I it it was almost like the water I was swimming in. I was not. I was completely oblivious to that. And I, you know, the light bulb went off, and then you can see, yeah, this is wasteful. That is wasteful. i need to have a no interruption every time i would go out to take a phone call i would be interrupting the patient then i would have to restart my computer then it would take 2 minutes to load up all these wastes were completely things that i was oblivious to so so to dig a little deeper antonio what what you were observing was that um what what was that like in an exam room setting were those counseling yep it was in an exam room yeah okay uh, basically 8 to 10 patients i think he had at the time and he was running through each patient uh doing admissions uh, as well as a follow up work uh with each of these patients on a unit and so i was just uh, there observing his process and noting you know where there were pockets of waste um so it was just a way for us to you know because what we we like sunil said we did establish a good relationship and rapport with each other um but sunil kept asking me how do you make what you know your implicit knowledge how do you make it explicit how do you show me what you know and so it led into all of these conversations about well let's go take a look and let's go uh learn together um and so that's where that came well and and one thing that comes back to mind of uh, thinking about motivational interviewing and that that process starts with building relationships and rapport and not just jumping right in and you know the uh I think they use the phrase the writing reflex kicks in you need to stop drinking so much well wait a minute like who are you to say you don't even know me would lead to a, a very natural sort of resistance and i think there's risk of that also in a workplace like you know you um there's that instinct to tell people what to do or to tell them they need to change but you know bouncing it back to you antonio you know here thinking about dr deming and the system of profound knowledge and there there's systems thinking and there's also psychology so you're bringing in systems thinking i'm curious to hear more of your reflections on learning more than about psychology and behavioral health because it's it's really it's it's eye opening when you step back and think about how we used to go about things right right you know and um certainly um in the manufacturing world um you know you're working to improve at such a fast pace that sometimes you you skip some of those behavioral pieces um and it and it can short circuit your ability to gain long-term improvement um and so it was really you know when i talk about mentors um sunil is was a mentor of mine at shepherd and um certainly helped uh helped me understand some of the motivational interviewing pieces the stages of change um and how to approach this so we are working um to build a bridge if that makes sense uh to everyone in the organization um so they can they can you know take a step forward and it's not a matter of them understanding me it's a matter of me understanding them 
and really working to, um, you know, meet them where they're at and to, to think about even the language that I use. You know, I came in with a lot of buzzwords on lean and a lot of uh, Six Sigma terminology. And Sunil was like, yeah, take all of that and put it off to the side, you know, and really just simplify this so folks can understand uh, what it is you're trying to say. Um, and then we can work, we can work on building it from there. And so that's what we did. We built an entire course that was really centered on behavioral health, uh, you know, in relation to lean thinking. Um, and with that, um, folks really gravitated towards what we were trying to uh, impart. Yeah. I mean, I think people like learning from examples that they can relate to. Absolutely. Not just a healthcare example, but like if it's people in veterinary medicine, they want to hear veterinary medicine examples. People in laboratory medicine want to hear lab examples. Um, so, um, I, Sunil, you, you were about to add something. Yeah. So I think every conference that I was going to, one of the commonest presentations I would see would be uh, sessions on sustainment being a common problem uh, that there are so many uh, lean shops and lean hospitals, but there's no Toyota. I mean, that was a common theme and that everybody gets the technical piece. All right. They understand 5S and they understand A3 and they understand that. But getting people to adopt it is a problem. So it's not a technical challenge anymore, and it's an adaptive challenge. And that's where, you know, I kept thinking, well, there's so much in our field in psychiatry where we are dealing with this all the time. We are, we are, we are telling people, here, here's the right medicine for you. Here's the right therapy for you. Here's the right program for you. And there is all this resistance. And almost everything we do in psychiatry to overcome that resistance could be applied to lean thinking or applying to the challenge of sustainment or the challenge of getting people to, you know, the whole change management field and psychiatry are like, you know, cousins that probably need to meet more often, you know? <laughs> right. Um, so going back, stepping back a little bit to 2008, 2009, you know, when we talk about motivations, you know, you're learning about lean, but you know, what were like organizationally or personally, what were the motivations or the reasons why, Lean was it was interesting and something that you were driven um, to figure out how to adapt to the mental health care setting. So I think it was it was a time in my career where I had taken on some managerial or leadership roles, and in doing so, I was coming across in meetings and hearing about quality problems, safety problems. So I was generally curious about what have people done to solve these problems, and the answers from that you know, Steven Spear article was, there is a whole wealth of knowledge of how people have gone about solving quality or safety or delivery problems. And so then I said, you know, this is a whole new world to me. And once I discovered Lean, then I started reading more. I was very, very fortunate to have somebody like Antonio mentor me and, you know, uh, became like my sensei at Shepard Pratt, you know, correcting me saying, you know, you're giving all the answers in the class. You need to hold yourself back and stop stop giving people answers. You need to let people figure this way out. And it's not about you figuring everything out. It's about them figuring it out along the way. Um, and I think as I, it became a constant learning theory, going and applying it to work. We did like three big things at Shepherd Pride. One was, one was a course that we designed together, which was a course basically teaching people how to apply A3 thinking to their problem, which was a safety quality delivery problem at Shepherd Pratt. The second thing we did was we uh, instituted, um, you know, um, some um, like Kaizen activity or some three or four day event. Um, so that was a second way in which we tried to transmit this kind of thinking. The third thing we did was we established lean daily management boards or huddle boards on many of our inpatient units. So we were constantly seeing the application of those things in this space and each unit became like a microcosm into itself, giving us different challenges, different uh, resistances to kind of work with. And, you know, in some places we succeeded a lot, some places we had somewhat of a moderate success, in some places we didn't succeed. And it was like a mixed bag, but, you know, we were dealing with the whole normal distribution curve of some early adopters, some late adopters. And most people like waiting to see what everybody mm -hmm. else is going to do before we're going to jump on, you know? Yeah. 
Well, and then, you know, going back to what you're saying about wondering how people are solving problems, I think there's also a progression from looking for solutions, looking to journal articles or conferences or courses, going and taking solutions to plug in versus the solution being a process for problem solving, which is a different level solution. And that's where the A3 use and teaching and everything comes into play. And that's as much a, a behavioral tool as it is a technical tool. Yeah. I think in terms of like the coaching through an A3, not just following yep. a template. What were some of your reflections, either of or either of you or both of you on sort of like, you know, coaching people through effective problem solving? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, we, we found that a lot of folks wanted to, as we were teaching the A3, wanted to kind of rush through the process and you, you can see they would get all the way down, even into root cause within a, you know, just in their office. Right. And yeah. so we, yeah. we would start, um, you know, asking. Or they, would, or they would come to the class with a pre-specified solution that they wanted to retrofit into an uh, no, right, right, right. So right. that's the coaching. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think it's interesting because a lot of leaders, they, they end up becoming leaders because they're good problem solvers. Right. And so. And they enter our course and they are they want to provide a solution to a problem and then put it on a piece of paper. Um, but, you know, but what we do is we back them up and we show them how to go through this process, because lots of times when they're actually going through it the right way and involving their stakeholders, um, they learn some things about their own uh, problem that they didn't really think about. And. Uh, by just taking that step back, they actually come out with much more clear, uh, much more concise solutions um, than what they would have come up with on their own. And so that I think that was one of the bigger takeaways uh, that I've seen um, through this process. Yeah, two other things that Antonio observed that, you know, one thing he felt was, especially in psychiatry, that we had a very verbose culture. People love to talk, people love to chat, people love to, you know, swap stories, anecdotes. So there was a lot of this anecdotal thinking, but there was no, not a very systematic, you know, um, data-driven approach to things where you look at, you know, aggregates or, you know, things like that. And measurement was something that a lot of medical professionals actually struggled with. And, you know, figuring out more uh, sophisticated ways of measuring things uh, um, was hard for them. And again, most people had no training in that. And even to do something simple like a Pareto chart or something like what you have in your book, Measures of Success, to look at common cause variation or, you know, special cause variation. Those were really advanced concepts for many people, even in healthcare. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit more um, about some of the things that, that you touch on um, in in the book, and um, we can come back and, and, and discuss other lean topics from your experience and and your work. Um, in 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 the book and in the material about the book, there's a, a statement there. Um, so one in five Americans experience uh, a mental illness each year, um, and, and and that data was probably pre. COVID. Um, so I'm interested to know if you could fill in a little bit of detail there of, you know, what, what would be the most common form of, of mental illness that, ex- that people experience and, and, and how much of a challenge is there where, where people, for whatever reasons, don't get access to the right treatment for that? So I think the commonest disorders that you would see probably would be anxiety and mood disorders. Those would be the commonest disorders that are almost ubiquitous and almost all of us have been through some times in our life where we have suffered from very uh, difficult, anxious or sad or melancholic moments. Um, I think as the stigma towards mental health has declined over, over the years, even now there's a lot of stigma, but as it has been declining, the acceptance of need for mental health treatment has been growing. And because it's a very labor intensive you know, um, experience, like most psychiatric care happens one-on-one, like, you know, where you're sitting with a therapist or a psychiatrist one-on-one in sessions that can last anywhere from 15 minutes to 30 minutes to an hour. And most people have chronic conditions for which they come to see a psychiatrist or a therapist. There's not enough people, there's not enough, you know, person power to 
solve all these problems in such a labor intensive way and of course you know the constant challenge is that you hear from people today is i want to see a psychiatrist but the earliest i can see one is in 8 weeks from now or 6 weeks from now or there's a huge waiting list or people er's are clogged up or you know places are clogged up waiting for a psychiatric bed because there is no psychiatric bed so this is going to just worsen and um yes some tools have come about because of the pandemic like telepsychiatry or telemedicine has come about in a big way um but there is so much waste i think trapped in how the labor is used or how the workforce is used like two big examples one is the amount of documentation uh, a psychiatrist has to do or a, a psychiatric practitioner has to do in a hospital could be literally 40 to 50% of my day is spent in actually documenting what i'm actually doing so even if you were to cut that down by half you would you know you would increase your workforce by an additional 25% um second the the whole promise of electronic medical records has really not seen the benefits have not been translated easily to mental health care because as you can imagine a lot of mental health care has to do with narratives and what you say to me what i say to you unfortunately almost all billing you know all these uh, emr software are billing driven and they want to see eight points of this and four points of that and six points of this for you to be able to bill something and again for if i had to see a new patient in the paper and pencil world it would take me 45 minutes to see a patient and maybe 15 minutes to write up my note in the modern electronic world i was spending 45 minutes seeing the patient and almost 30 to 40 minutes typing that note and so so much of time is trapped in just sheer documentation which is a huge problem i think for this country i i read somewhere i don't have the source right now but even comparing usa to britain or to uk the notes are three times as long in the us because of defensive medicine or because of fear of malpractice or because of third party payers everybody wants more and more explanations direct quotes more examples and the note becomes so large that most people are spending all their evenings with a laptop just documenting notes we call it it's euphemistically called pajama time where you're wearing a pajama and writing notes yeah it sounds like there's a, a very full fishbone diagram to be filled out of uh many many bones uh of of you know answering this question a high level question of you know what how many people or why don't people get access to the right treatment like you say uh stigma um lack of access to appointments um could be insurance or other coverage issues so it seems like that that access challenge in addition to safety and quality Yep. um you think would be a, a a a big motivator um but you 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 can't just tell someone you're over documenting this comes back to um the questions around behavior change or looking and asking why it's this tremendous organizational inertia like you know if you try to document less then people who do coding or people who are in the compliance world they say no 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 medicare will not allow this or medicaid will not allow this you have to document all these 20 lines for me to justify that this code is appropriate for you to bill for and so we are all kind of nobody wants to bell the cat and everybody's kind of you know no matter which audit you come out of whether it's a joint commission audit or a cms audit at the end three or four things get added to your note and the note just gets longer and longer over time yeah and you know and you know what just to kind of piggyback on that a little bit so what snail is describing is there there's um a constraint in the number of resources that we have in mental health care But I think what I've come to appreciate over my time working with Sunil and at Shepherd Pratt is that mental health care is primary health care. And you know, if you think about all these chronic conditions folks have, you know, mental health is one of the uh major contributors to many of these healthcare conditions. Um so, you know, just thinking about that and appreciating that, understanding the constraints within the healthcare field um there i think there needs to be more um emphasis around trying to improve the the system of care um so now one one question and this is you know not necessarily a lean question but just to 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 close some of that discussion on on mental health if 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 somebody is listening or they know somebody 
who is questioning if they should reach out uh, for, for mental health care, like when, when should they reach out? Like if they're questioning it, is that a sign at least to, you know, to reach out? Should they talk to their primary care physician or what, what do you recommend is like a first yeah, step? Absolutely. I think, I think mm-hmm. 80% of mental health care is delivered by primary care doctors. In fact, in all the new uh, payment models uh, to do a, a PHQ-9 or a GAD-7, these are like small, simple screening tools for depression, anxiety. Uh, they have simple screening tools for addiction. I think it's absolutely perfectly okay to talk to your primary care doctor. Um, I my One of my common things that I would tell all my residents and students was don't worry alone. You know, if you have, if you have some worry or some difficulty that you're going through life, talk to somebody and it could be, a, it could start with a friend or a family member, but it could then expand the circle to a physician or a primary care doctor. And at some point, if the problem is persistent or disabling or chronic, you will be referred to a professional and, you know, there is no shame in it. Just like you could have a disorder of the pancreas you could have a disorder of the brain that is leading to these problems. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Sunil. So what, one other thing I wanted to dive into a little bit more, you mentioned lean daily management. Uh, Antonio, maybe I can uh, bounce that over to you. Um, that, that's a phrase we hear a lot or variation of that phrase uh, in healthcare and beyond. How, how do you describe lean daily management? What are some of the, the main principles or components of that? Sure. So um, the way the way we set it up at Shepherd, and it's different in every organization that I've been at, right? We set it up a little bit differently in each one because um, we wanted to tailor it to the uh, environment that we're in. Again, trying to build that bridge. So at Shepherd, we said, okay, let's focus on you know one safety, one quality, one delivery um, uh, metric or or problem that we're trying to solve that relates to that specific unit. Um, so where we might have a, a psychotic disorders unit that's focused on trying to ensure that they keep all of their staff and patients safe on that unit, a very big, important piece. And so they wanted to focus on um, you know, violence reduction, whereas a geriatric unit doesn't need to focus on that, right? They need to focus on something different, maybe orthostasis or you know, ensuring, you know, the elderly don't fall um, unnecessarily, right? And so they have a different focus. And so what we did is we said, let's, let's ensure that the local team can establish what those priorities are that um, are, are important to that team and to that unit success. And so that's how we established each one of these boards um, and what we did is we set up a cadence where the leadership team would um, basically uh, round on these units with those local teams to just see how they're doing uh, with their uh, improvement process. Um, and, you know, if there are any needs that they had um, that particular day. Um, and it wasn't a leadership rounding thing. So we, we told local teams if, if the leadership team is late, by one minute, you are not to wait for them, right? And so <laughs> you are to just do your thing. And if we're there, great. If we're not, um, keep doing your thing and we'll we'll catch up. Um, and so we made it a very uh, unit-centric approach. And because of that, they really owned it um, and they, they drove it. And so we wanted to make sure it wasn't just another PI process improvement initiative by this improvement team off off on the side. It was something that was owned by that unit, by that team, and they cared about it. Just like, uh, you know, Gavande says in his book, you know, better count something, you know. So basically we were teaching people to start counting things, putting it on a run chart, do a, you know, red or green chart to say, was it a green day or was it a red day? Do a little bit of root cause analysis and, and come up with an action plan make an actual spreadsheet and see who's going to monitor what at by what date, make them more accountable. So that whole problem solving process got embedded in this day-to-day solving of problems. Right. You know? right. Yeah. And that's where it seems like there are parallels between what you're describing there, between good A3 problem solving. There are parallels, I think it seems to the motivational interviewing approach, where instead of just focusing on the actions, you talk about, the motivations so that can translate into goals and measures 
um, for the organization and then work with people to figure out how are we closing those gaps in performance. Right. And, and using good, you know, kata based questions uh, along the way to help them learn. And through that learning, they become, you know, self-actualized and, and are doing this process with their teams. Uh, whether or not Sunil or I are, are there, they're continuing that process. Yeah. Well, and that's a good sign that's becoming part of the culture when they're continuing that process. We're not filling out A3s because someone told us we had to. They're filling out and using A3s because they're finding them helpful. And, right. and that's that's exciting to hear. I mean, when Antonio came, there was no such department. Today, at Shepard there's a whole department of operational excellence. There are six or seven industrial engineers working there. You know. Um, I'm sure they could hire many more, but the, the fact that there is a full-fledged department, a space, a time, uh, resources given to that, it's creditable, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to talk a little bit more, you know, with, with the book, you mentioned the challenge of, uh, of burnout. And when we talk about motivations and reasons for lean, you know, I think trying to create workplaces uh, that lessen the risk of burnout. Um, that's an important motivation, having fewer people quit and leave the field. We know that was a, a, a big problem um, before the pandemic. It's getting a lot more attention um, because of how the last two years have gone. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on burnout. I mean, like for one, is that is that categorized as a mental health issue, quote unquote, or is that an organizational career issue? I'm just curious how you categorize that. I mean, I don't think it has made it to the uh, diagnostic and statistical manual or as a as a diagnosable condition. Although, you know, burnout is a more uh, non-specific term that could lead to depression or it could lead to anxiety. It could lead to, you know, um, substance use disorder. It could lead to people just, you know, um, uh, impulsively quitting their jobs. You know, it could lead to those problems, but it's more of a meta phenomenon that is you know, like a funnel that can bring about other, you know, or, or trigger other more deep-seated problems or um, and have a much broader effect on the workforce. I think what I've come to appreciate is that so many of the solutions that are proposed for burnout initially that were coming out were all driven towards the individual. Okay, you need to take care of yourself. You need to exercise more, you need to have a work-life balance, you need to do mindfulness courses. But today, you know, after work of people like at Mayo Clinic, people who are studying this more realize that it is as much an organization's responsibility to create the right conditions for working and to involve and engage people in solving these systemic problems as a recipe to, you know, get a more engaged workforce, to have less burnout, to have less of these, you know, uh, chronic and persistent problems. Um, and, you know, Antonio was able to do that in units which had a very high turnover. Like he worked with a unit which almost like a, you know, very high percentage of people quitting. And after three or four months of talking to them, understanding what their constraints were, working with the manager, creating an environment where they were solving these little, little problems, the manager was able to see a much more engaged workforce. And the Turnover plummeted from like very high numbers to less than ten percent in within yeah, a matter from, of six months. From, uh, yeah, it went from like seventy-five percent turnover to less than three percent within uh, six months, and it stayed that way for over a year and a half. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. great, and I, I love the way you frame that. You know, we're we'll bringing it back to Deming and the idea of systems thinking. Yeah. Um, you're right. It's it's silly to blame individuals for their reaction to systemic problems especially when those reactions tend to be pretty consistent. You know, I've talked to nurses and doctors over the years who I, 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 uh, I tend to agree with them when they scoff at the idea of being sent to resilience training again. Like I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that people are realizing that the organization can uh, improve the systems instead of trying to help people just deal with it one way or another. Um, the, the, the more, provocative language that you know Dr. Deming would use he would talk about you know we've built these prisons of a management system we can change them That's right. just today morning I was reading uh, uh, Masaki Imai's book Gemba Kaizen and one of the phrases that really struck me was the management needs to create elbow room for Kaizen and you know that creating that elbow room 
is such a big lift for today's management to have this kind of fragile endeavor of doing Kaizen work possible. And to me, that's what we write about in our last chapter of the book is initially when this whole endeavor starts in an organization, it's a very fragile thing. Anytime there's a budget problem or a financial problem, that's the first thing that people will look to like, oh, this is not needed. But to me, that's exactly where your solutions are going to come from. That's exactly where these seed ideas are going to come from that will have you know, a beneficial effect for your firm later on. That is definitely true. And I, you know, I think there's, there's similarities of um, thought. You know, don't blame your employees for not speaking up. Look at systemic issues of maybe why they don't have the psychological safety to speak Correct. up. Because I've found in every single workplace I've gone to, people have ideas. Yep. They know what the problems are, right? So if you hear leaders scoff and 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 sort of say things that are blaming, or you know, my employees don't have great ideas, yep. they probably do. So we can step back and look systematically. Um, I, and I think there's a common theme here. You know, don't blame people for systemic errors. Uh, don't blame individuals for systemic burnout. Don't blame people for resisting someone else's idea. So Sunil, you mentioned earlier, I was going to ask you to elaborate. You know, you talk about this sort of this, this um, reaction. You tell me to do something. You tell me I need to change. I'll tell you reasons why I don't need to. Or can, can you talk about that a little bit more in the context of how that's almost to be like an expected natural human reaction? Yeah. So the idea is to take the person's what what we say in motivation interviewing is that I may be an expert on addiction or I may be an expert, you know, in, in psychiatry, but you're an expert on your life. You know what diets are manageable by you. Like if you're somebody who, you know, depends on somebody else to fix a meal for you, you're not going to eat a Mediterranean diet because they're going to, you're going to eat whatever they give you. So we can sit in our, you know, a high pedestal and say, you need to do this or you need to do that. But I need to understand from you what are your life circumstances? What are your contexts? What is it that you want to achieve? You may come to me with four different problems of drinking, smoking, being overweight, having diabetes. And I have to ask you, is this something that you have the bandwidth to work with? And you might say, you know, my eating is fine, but I'm really drinking too much. And I say, okay, let's talk about how much are you drinking and what what is your goal? And you may say, you know, I don't want to be, you know, once I take three drinks, I don't know when I take the 10th or the 11th one. I don't even mm -hmm. realize that, you know? And yeah. so I may say to you, like, you know, what can you do? And they may come up. So the idea of motivation interviewing is that you know the answer. You know what you need to do. It's my way to show you and coach you on how to get there. Similarly, in systems thinking, as Antonio and I discovered, most people who were at the workplace, they know what is the problem. They'll say, like, you know, every two days we have a staff shortage and you expect us to do a lean daily management. I really don't have the time to do that. So we would say like, you know, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Unless your staffing is stable, these are all luxuries, you know, for, for you to think about. So um, I think, so that's where the management responsibility comes in. That's where the leadership responsibility comes in is to what can you do? Like the inverse pyramid that, you know, Imai talks about is like your role as a manager, as a leader, is to support the Gemba or is it support the workplace? And are you doing a good job of that? Or are you just sitting in your boardrooms and looking at the numbers and saying, well, we need to cut staff here and we need to do this or do that. And is that really your role? And and to me, I think, again, talking about what, you know, John Tuisand always talks about is one of the most challenging things is to lead, to get leaders to look at their standard work or the, to look at their day-to-day -day habits to see if what they're doing to actually support the workplace. Yeah, those are all really good points. And I think back to, you know, this um, question of, um, you know, asking people for, for input and not taking ownership of a problem away from them. I think those are great problem solving um, practices or, or habits for, for leaders or uh, lean practitioners. And, and I'll add, you know, I think what, what you've added there, there's this list, should type this out at some point, of don't blame people for dot, 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 I would add, don't blame people for being resistant to change. They're, they're being human. And I think as soon as we label, like, Oof, they're resistant. Well, like, no, like, don't, don't brush people aside like that. Don't label them. You, you need to, you need to keep engaging, I think is the lesson that to me, that was one of the most powerful takeaways of motivational interviewing. Yeah. 
it's a very natural reaction to anybody trying to change your habits, your neuroplasticity, your way of thinking is, you know, I tell people, this is how you fold your hands, try to do it in a reverse order and see how difficult <laughs> that is or how odd that feels. Right. Even such a simple change feels awkward. You know, for, so to imagine that you're going to change your entire work pattern or entire uh, way of seeing patients, that's a very big change you're expecting people to do. And, and people are going to ask why. So to do that exercise, if you tell me, cross your arms the other way, before I even try it, I might say, Sunil, why? Come on, why? I don't want to. It's not even, I don't want to. I don't understand yeah. the problem. I don't understand. And, and it, uh, to, the, to me, this comes back to A3 thinking of like that upper left portion of the A3 before we get anywhere near the root cause analysis of just understanding what's the background, what's the context, why is this important? That's, I, I think, a, a powerful parallel to motivational interviewing as well. Um, so as, as we wrap up here, before we get final thoughts, um, the book, again, it's titled uh, Transforming Mental Health Care, Applying Performance Improvement Methods to Mental Health Care, um, co-authored by Sunil Koshalani and uh, Antonio DePaolo. Uh, so we got the MD, PhD, uh, physician, engineer, um, combination. That's that's great to see. So the book is available now through Amazon and other outlets. Um, maybe as a, a final thought, you know, be curious to hear you know, one one other lesson learned. Um, you know, trial uh, trial by fire. Lessons learned of trying to apply these uh, these methods. You know, there are a lot of successes that you've pointed to. Um, or is there you know kind of a, a pitfall or a lesson learned? that comes to mind, something you've learned from along the way, from, from the challenges, the, the real challenges of, of doing this work. So one of the lessons I learned about sustainment was each area where you're trying to deploy a new technical solution is a new PDCA. That was my mm. learning the hard way. I, you know, I tried to do the same thing. I tried to share results from one place to excite somebody else. But as Antonio said, their problems may have been different. They may have had a different starting point. Maybe taking care of belongings was important to one unit because they were losing a lot of belongings of patients. But maybe that was not a problem to a different unit and they had a different problem that I needed to work with. So my first question when I work with a manager today is, tell me what stresses you the most. To me, that's where we need to start. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I follow that easier, better, faster, cheaper order and say, I want to make things easier for you for me to explain to you what is really going to make this come alive for you. And if I can make your day easier, if I can reduce some of your burden as a manager, as a leader, as a doctor, as a nurse, then you will understand why this method is important and why I'm so excited about this method. Thank you for that, Sunil. Uh, Antonio, what, what, what do you have? Yeah, you know, I think um, it, it really goes back to uh, originally why I joined Shepherd Grant and what we really got out of it was the relationship side of improvement um, is really, uh, in my opinion, the cornerstone of lean and, and really building that um, is essential for this um, type of thinking to work. And uh, so that was really the biggest lesson learned is, you know, you can't just take this stuff from a, a manufacturing environment and, and throw it right into a, a different uh, sector and, and think it's going to work. You really have to uh, work to build relationships. You have to uh, build a bridge. You have to learn about their environment. Um, and then through all of that learning, uh, there can be a collective kind of approach that is adapted and works um, for that environment. And so that, to me, that was really the biggest uh, lesson learned along the way. Well, thanks. And uh, thanks again to you both, Sunil and Antonio. Um, congratulations again on the book. I hope people will go check it out. Again, it's Transforming Mental Health Care is the title. And I, you know, I hope people will check it out. I mean, maybe if they're not working, uh, if, if you, the listener, aren't working in mental health care, um, I, I know there'll still be lessons for you to, to draw from the book to apply to your own setting, or maybe you can help your organization um, find a sponsor within the mental health care area to, um, to bring you in to help, because it certainly sounds like there are big opportunities. So thank you for highlighting some of the opportunities and, and how lean and uh, performance improvement methods have, have been helpful. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thank you. Well, thanks again to Sunil and Antonio for being guests today for a great conversation. To learn more about them and their book and more, go to leanblog.org slash 435. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.